while they're leaving, if you will turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, is where we find ourselves today, verses 17 through uh, 34. So last week we uh, had the joy of talking about head coverings and all that was going on there in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, uh, 11, 1 through 16. And uh, that there were some cultural things going on there and that, and we... We, we talked about that, and I hope that was clear. Well, today, I, I want to ask the question and deal with the question, for the better or the worse? For the better or for the worse? And, and it's up to us as regarding which one that'll be. And in cha- ver- chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, Paul continues to deal here with some things that were going on regarding the gatherings of believers, the, the, the gatherings of believers. This is not just out in the community. This is when they were gathering together as a body, these things were going on. And Paul says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, this is verse 17, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in the eating, each one takes his own supper first, and and one that is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. And in many ways, this is a very familiar passage. I I, I look at this passage when we we take the Lord's Supper together and we we point to this passage. and, and, And familiar passages can be difficult passages to preach. You, you kind of think, I got that, I, I know what it says there, I, I'm good there, and you check the box real quick, and we know them so well, we just kind of yawn at them, we just kind of move on, and, and, and so I want to approach it a little differently today. Uh, I, I, I want to be true to the text, always want to be true to the text, but I want to approach it a little differently. I, I'm not going to, we, we've talked about verses 27 through 34 specifically before we've talked about the what the when the why the who all those things regarding the Lord's Supper and I may I may touch on those briefly but but I want to I want to come to this text a little differently today 
And I want to start it off by watching a video. Uh, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I, I want to show us a video. It's a video that we saw probably about a year and a half ago. We've seen it. But it's probably the most accurate picture of the gospel that I've ever seen in my entire life. It's probably the most accurate picture of what God has done in sending His Son Jesus to die on the cross. That I've, so I want, to, I want us to watch that video again because before we come to this text and before we talk about why it was so shameful and disgraceful for them to be doing what they were doing, I want us to understand why. I want us to watch this video and, and understand why would it be so grotesque, so offensive, how when they gather it could be for the worse and not for the better, how could that be? And when, while you watch this video, I want you to think about a few things with me. Have you believed in this Jesus? Not, 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 a, not a genie in the box Jesus, not a Jesus that this world puts out, but have you believed in this biblical Jesus that we're going to see on this video? The, the one who died for your sins, the one who lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, have you responded properly not only have you believed in this gospel, have you responded properly to this gospel? You see, it demands a response. Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. He says, give yourself. The only worthy response is your life. Ask yourselves this. Am I, am I, am I going back for the lost? Am I going back to where God found me? And am I sharing this wonderful grace with those who still need to hear it? Or have I taken this grace and just ran and hide and hidden? Have you taken God's loving mercy and just ran off and lived how you want to live? Hiding? Or, or are you willing to go back? Are you going back? And, and in doing so, are, we, are you willing to even come here and give yourself up for one another here? See, the tendency, and Paul says it over and over in 1 Corinthians, over and over. He says, do not become arrogant. Do not become arrogant. The, the tendency for us is to take God's grace... And eventually we become prideful and become arrogant thinking we were worthy of that grace. That we deserved that grace. That God was smart in saving us. That He should have saved us. And that's not the gospel. Do, do you love others the way that Christ loves you? And so watch with this video and then I'll come back and, and, and finish. to introduce you to the gospel right now you are a rebel whether you want to acknowledge it or not i'll tell you straight up you are a rebel against the living god this is your natural disposition why because you are born in sin we are in a prison cell and it takes the awakening and the grace of god you call it the provenient grace of god to awaken us to the fact that we are lost and we can't get out we're headed towards destruction fast the enemy, because of our rebellion against God, has legal rights to harm and harass our life. There you are behind the prison cell. Help! I need out! You can't get out. Those prison bars are stronger than any adamant. There is no way you can cut them because they're stronger than diamond. It is impenetrable. You cannot escape. You're doomed because when the enemy comes in in the very end and he's going to finish you off because he has legal right to do it and he's going to relish every minute of it. In strolls your intercessor, your mighty man. And he stands between you and that accuser and he takes the hit. 
that was rightfully yours. He takes the blow that was intended for you. That is an extraordinary reality that he was turned to a pulp and he actually died. God died for you. Over your prison cell, it has always said condemned, separated eternally from God, guilty. And then suddenly it switches. When you realize what Jesus Christ has done, it says justified. It says forgiven, redeemed. Here's the problem. Most of us have stopped with the good news right there. The blood of Jesus Christ has been shed and he was killed. And I want you to know that is unbelievable news. But we are still in a prison cell. And so we're praising God from within a prison cell going, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for changing the sign on the outside of the prison. And God's word says, could you check the door to the prison cell? Because my blood was shed for more than just forgiveness. Forgiveness was the avenue through which he could make the escape for us. He isn't just interested in dealing with the consequences or the penalty of sin. He's also dealt with the problem of sin. That's the door. It's unlocked. The door to the prison cell is unlocked. Walk out. Smell the open air of freedom and liberty in the life of Jesus Christ. When you get outside the prison cell, there's like this chariot that's waiting. Emissaries from the king, and they say, the king beckons you into his presence. You know how bizarre this is when you realize that you were a rebel? That you were undeserving completely? The living God has literally given up his life for you, and now he has set you free, and now the very king is beckoning you into his presence? It's like, are you sure you have the right guy here? I'm a rebel. I stood against my God. I spat in his face. How could he want me? The king beckons you. You get in the chariot. And as you're pulling into the kingdom, you're looking for where they might drop you off. You're looking for that poor district. You're saying, where, where are you taking me? Well, into the very near presence of the king. He wants you to live right where he lives. Not just the penalty, not just the problem, but an invitation into his very near presence. But as you're coming in, the emissaries say, he wants to adopt you as his child. Me? As a child? We are brought in and invited near to share his heart. You come into his presence totally broken before the reality of what he has done for you. I don't deserve this. Why have you done this for me? I love you. I have a commission for you. For me? You want to have me work for you? I want you to work for me. I want you to represent me. Absolutely. Anything I can do for you, just tell me. I need you to go back to that prison cell that I took you out of because there's a whole bunch more that need to know about me and my love and my truth. Will you go for me? In a heartbeat, I would, I would gladly serve you any way you want, any way you ask. I need to forewarn you. I'm going to send you out and you'll be as a sheep among wolves. They'll kill you. They'll destroy you. They'll hate you. They'll persecute you. They will do whatever they can to harm you. I'm in. I'll do it, God. I don't care. You shed your blood for me. I would gladly shed my blood for you. Take my body. Take my blood. Spend it any way you want. I belong to you in, in covenant. Take me, Lord Jesus. Send me. 
the commission, not just the penalty, not just the problem, not just the invitation to his very near presence, not just the adoption as a son and a daughter of the King of Kings, but we are commissioned to represent him. And I want you to realize that is a privilege beyond all other privileges to bear the very name, the very image, the very reputation of God Almighty. And he says, I ask you to go. Go and make disciples of all men. Go and be unashamed of my gospel and preach it. Go, rescue the lost in the power of my name. For is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? I'll go. And as you're beginning to head out with his blessing, he says, hold it. Wait, there's one more thing. Not just the penalty, not just the problem, not just the invitation to his very near presence, not just the adoption as a son or a daughter of the king, and not just the commission. This is the capstone. And if you think that is all good, you could wrap that all up into one ball and it still falls short of the final one. Because this final one is so condescending on the part of our king. It is so bewildering. It is so extraordinary, so amazing. And this is the truth that turns the world upside down. Before you go, what I'm sending you out to do is impossible. I know. And if you do it in your own strength, you'll fail. I don't care. I'm willing to do whatever you ask of me. And if you want me to go in there and just die, I'm willing. I'm sending you out to be a victor. My children will not lose. Would you give me your body? And I will come in and make it my home. And I will take those hands of yours and make them my hands. I will take those feet of yours and make them my feet. I will take that mouth of yours and it will speak my words. I will take those eyes of yours and they can now see what I need you to be seen in this world. And I will take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh so that it will beat with my burdens and you will care for the very things that I care about. And your prayers will become my prayers. And your life and your attitude and your behavior every minute of every day will be the very behavior of God. Will you allow me to overtake your life? Because then we go into this world as little lambs with the faces of lions. Because the living God Almighty, the consuming, almighty, sovereign God dwells within his children. And as we stand and the wolf pack surrounds us, we stand in the authority in the name of Jesus and we will not back down. Because we do not head off to war to lose. We head off to war to win. Our God mocks all the powers of earth and hell through fluffy little lambs because his lambs beat the wolf pack. That's the gospel. The gospel trounces upon all the powers of earth and hell and demonstrates to the universe the manifold wisdom of God that he is in control. And even though we look weak, and even though physically and naturally we are weak, spiritually greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world.
Your God is ready to do it in and through you. You can't do it. You can't muster up the discipline. You can't muster up the intellect. You can't muster up the strength. You can't muster up the perseverance and the fortitude. He can. You can't love the lost. You can't love those who spit upon your face. He can. Don't pray that God would teach you how to love like he loves. Pray that he would fill you with himself and he would love in and through you. Don't pray that he would teach you to have joy. Pray that the living God full of joy would enter into you. Don't pray that he would teach you how to be peaceful. Ask for the God of peace, the Prince of Peace, to fill you. Because if you try and imitate your own strength, you will be a miserable replica. But if you allow the impartation of Jesus Christ to overtake you, suddenly it all works because it's him imitating himself. And he's very good at being God. Strong video. You know, what we see in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 and following is what happens when we forget that. This is what happens when we try to do it our own strength, when we try to do it on our own initiative, when we take, we, we want to do it on our own. Th this is what happens in, in right here in our text. And, and in Paul's day, the, the Lord's Supper was attached to, uh, to a meal. It was a love feast. They, they, would, they would have a meal, and then after that meal, they, they would take the Lord's Supper. And in the Gospel accounts, you go to Matthew 26, you go to, to Mark, and there where he, there, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, and they're having a meal. And, and it was attached to that meal. And, and, and that's where Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper. And that meal that they were eating, it was the Passover meal. And that Passover meal, was to special, it was a special meal uh, orchestrated and designed and, and given to them by God to commemorate their deliverance out of Israel. The Passover meal was to help them to remember that it was God who brought them out of Egypt. That they did not do that on their own. They did not do that on their own strength. They didn't do that on their own ingenuity. God did that for him. And every time they took the Passover meal, they remembered that it was God's grace. They were in bondage in Israel. They were bound. 400 years and God delivered them and God used some plagues to to work in Pharaoh's heart and to 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 prompt him if you will and to let his people go and the last of those plagues Pharaoh continually if you remember the story he, Moses would go to him and say let my people go he refused he sent the plagues and Pharaoh would say yes and then he'd renege yes and then renege well the last plague was the death of the firstborn son God said, okay, the firstborn son in all these families is going to die. And what God did was he told them, take you, Israel, my people. When that angel of death comes, you, you sacrifice a lamb. You take that lamb's blood and you, you spread it over the door frames of your home, over the, over the doorpost of your home. And when that angel comes, he will pass over your homes. You'll be spared. 
So, so they ate a meal, they, they sat, made a sacrifice to God, they, they applied by faith. Again, you're, they're doing this by faith. They apply the blood to the door, and that night the angel passed over them, and that was the key to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And whenever the Jew wanted to remember that God was a deliverer, that God was a redeemer, that, that, that all these things, they would take, that was the Passover meal that did that. God is Savior, God is Redeemer, God is Deliverer. All those things were wrapped up in the Passover meal. The fact that they had been in bondage and that they were free, the fact that they had not been a people and now they were a people, all that was, all that was commemorated at the Passover meal. And, and that again, that is the meal that they were eating when, when Jesus inaugurates the Lord's Supper. And Jesus takes on the, on the death, on the eve of His death, He transforms the Passover meal into something even greater, a meal that would remember an exodus even greater than that which was in Egypt. In Egypt, God delivered Israel. Guess what? In the cross, God made deliverance for the whole world available. See, He took the the idea, hey, you you want to talk about deliverance? I'm going to show you deliverance. And, and he, he transformed that meal into something even greater. That, that it was a salvation even greater than what Israel experienced. And God, Jesus takes them from the exodus to the cross. He, he takes their attention from now on. He says, look, you won't look back at the exodus from Egypt if you want to see who I am. From now on, you're going to look back at the cross. Focus on the cross. Live for the cross. Do, do, this, do this from now on in remembrance of the cross. Not, not of the exodus of Egypt, but the exodus from sin. The, 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 I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going potenti- to be, that death is going to be so efficient and sufficient, the whole world could be saved if they would respond to me by faith. And it's always been a faith. Noah and his family built the ark, they got on the ark by faith. The nation of Israel, they walked through that Red Sea that was parted by faith. All throughout, the, it's never been any different. It's faith. And the great, the cross, here's why. Paul, Jesus says, focus on the cross. And Paul is saying that here. He says, the cross is the greatest display of God's redemption, His saving power. There, it, it, this is not, it's not the exodus from Egypt. It's the cross. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper because we look back to the cross for our redemption. But not only that, we look forward, as we'll see, to His return. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. But it's not the blood that was smeared over a doorpost. It's the blood that was shed by God Himself, Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. And it's probable, and just so you understand the context, it's probable that in, in the early, early days that Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper every time they ate, or at least every time they gathered. It's very probable. You, you see evidences of this. You can, we won't go there, but you see evidences in Acts that every time they got together, and even sometimes every time they ate, they would commemorate that with the Lord's Supper. That's how big a deal the cross was. They understood the greatness of what Jesus had inaugurated for them. And, and the breaking of bread became synonymous with fellowship, with meals. You can look in Acts 4, and there's some key things that the church participated in early on, and one of them was, the bre- it says, to the breaking of bread and prayer. They ate together. 
They ate together. We, we love to eat together. We're going to do it today. And, and this meal would lead directly into the Lord's Supper. And early on in Acts, you see, here's, the, here's what you see, a picture of the gospel. You see free men being saved, and you see slaves being saved, and you see in a community being established. Look, look with me at Acts 4. It'll come up on the screen. Acts 4, verses 32 through 35. Listen, this is, they understood what God had done. They understood what the meal, what the meal was, was, was picturing. They understood the significance of the cross and what the cross had done. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed as each had any need. Here's the thing. You had freed men becoming believers and you had slaves becoming believers. Those slaves would have nothing. And they understood the greatness of what God had done. The freed men were giving up their rights, their privileges, their stuff, laying it down so that everybody in the church would be taken care of. They looked after one another. The distinction is, the point is this, they had everything in common because they understood that in the cross, they understood Galatians 3.23, that there's neither slave nor free man, male, female, there's not white, black, there's none of these distinctions in the cross. They're all destroyed. Everyone began living their lives together, no matter, no matter where you came from, rich, poor, slave, free, man, woman, Greek, Jew, it didn't matter, they were one body, the church. The church. They, they looked out for one another because they understood that in Christ they were one body. That God, in putting his son on that cross, had formed one family. And eventually, this meal became a weekly thing. And as you continue to read through Acts, it seems that it transitioned to a weekly thing. And it would commemorate, uh, really, the, the resurrection of our Lord. And, and they would commemorate that on Sundays, that, that, that it, early on, the Lord's Supper, uh, they, would, they would eat a meal, they would take the Lord's Supper, and then they would get a sermon. So I'm not going to preach to you again after Sunday supper. We're going to reverse that order. We'll do it on the front end. But that was sort of how the, that it had happened. They would have a meal together, they would take the Lord's Supper together, and then there would be a sermon. They would open up the Word together. And they did it to remember, to remember what God had done. And over time... Over time, that meal faded. Because again, it was, not it was not specifically commanded in Scripture. It was something they did, and that meal sort of faded. And it's very possible that some of the reason it faded was because of the abuses that we see in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. We would all testify that that's the tendency. Things start out real precious, real valuable, and over time, what do we do? We take it for granted. And the meal started off to mean a world to them. And eventually, 20, 15, 20, 30 years later, not a big deal anymore. And so at the time that Paul writes to the Corinthians, they were having some common meals together, but the problem was it had lost its function. It had lost the meaning of what they were celebrating. And, and it's interesting. Again, today is, is the first Sunday supper. Their meal would have looked very similar to what we're going to do here in an hour. 
everyone would have just brought food. They would have piled it up on a table. They'd have said, hey, it's common property. Go eat. Go eat. It would have looked very similar to what we're about to do. Rich, poor, man, woman, free, slave, Jew, Gentile. Christ had destroyed all of those barriers, and they were all signifying that by coming to one table to eat together. You would not have done that prior to that. They were all coming together. And yet, within some 20 years of Christ's death, we see what's happening in in Corinth. That the very barriers that Christ destroyed are being resurrected by man. All the barriers that Christ destroyed, man is now trying to reenact them and resurrect them. Social barriers that were destroyed begin to pop back up. Division amongst one another begin to pop back up. The gratitude, the amazement for what Christ had done, gone. Gone. At at minimum, it started to wear off, at minimum. The humility of being once a a lost sinner condemned to death and, and, and the gratitude for what Jesus Christ had done had turned into arrogance and pride. You you see that all throughout. And and this is our tendency. Not only was this their tendency, that's our tendency today, to forget what God has done for us. To forget why we gather. To to forget what was accomplished on our behalf. That that we, who are at at one point, we were without Christ, without a Savior, without hope, destined to die in eternal condemnation, and now we have a hope and a future and and an eternity in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's salvation. And, and, and our tendency, instead of being united by Christ's blood, they were being divided over social distinctions. They were dividing themselves. And, and here's the deal. The main social barrier that was dividing Corinth, the church that day, was between rich and poor. It was between the haves and the haves not. That was the number one social barrier. Are we still battling with that today? Absolutely. Still battle with that today. That's where the lines were drawn here, sociological distinctions. And, and Paul is saying, not only is that an abuse of corporate worship, that's an abuse of Christ. That is an abuse of your salvation. And, and the Corinthians, they had kept the food. They were going through the motions of the worship. But they had lost the symbol. They had lost the meaning of what it was that they were doing. The significance of the meal and the subsequent Lord's Supper was gone because they had handled it. It was gone. They had devalued it. They had made it common. They had made that which was separate, that which was to be separate, that which was to be sacred, that was to be protected, they had made it common. And we battle with that today too. And and look at verse 17. This is the verse I... We could just stop here, and this is where I got the title from. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. It had gotten to the point where their gathering together as believers was counterproductive. They were worse off for gathering than they would have been if they not gathered. That that is a, I don't know about you, but that, I just stopped as I'm studying this. Like, how in the world could that be? The thought that we could be worse for being here today. The thought that we would have been better off to just stay home and sleep. That's the possibility. And it depends on our attitude to why we're here. That that our gathering for worship 
could be a detriment. That's why you see in the, in the Gospels, Jesus says, if, you've got, if you are coming to the altar to worship and you've got anything against your brother and sister in Christ, what does he say? You leave your offering and you go be reconciled. He's saying you can't come here and worship and just go through the motions and think that I've been worshipped. That's what Christ is saying. You can't come any way you want and just think that, oh, you can hate your brother and sister in Christ, have grudges, do all this stuff, and you can just come and raise your hands and worship and think, I've been. no, it doesn't work that way. He says, you're, you're worse off. And it's interesting. The, the thing that they were doing, if we're honest with ourselves, it, it doesn't even seem like it's that grotesque. I mean, you read what's going on, and, and, it, and, it, and it, everything in this passage, what Paul is saying, it revolves around the bu- abuse of the poor in the church, the abuse of the poor. They were abusing those who did not have as much in their congregation. They were abusing them. At best, they were neglecting them. I mean, you would think in order to destroy worship, it would need to be something more egregious than that. I mean, just hogging the food? Not not getting together, you know, telling those great group of people, hey, you go eat over there, our table's full. That's simply what was going on. The, 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 that, that does not seem, if I'm, if I'm honest with my flesh, you're like, man, is that all it takes? And here's the, here's the thing. We got to understand our unity as a church is of utmost importance. Our worship is of utmost importance. And we can't treat one another with contempt. We can't act like what we just saw in that video is not true. We can't act like we were not bound in shackles to sin. We can't act like we got out of there on our own. We can't act like God was smart or, or wise to save us and expect to worship God. Because when you do that, you demean the gift of salvation. The better you are, the less sinful you were, and the less sinful I was, in my own mind, I demean the offering of Christ. And again, he, the, the statement, come together, in verses 17 through 34, that statement, come together, occurs five times. Five times. There, there ought to be unity here. There ought to be camaraderie. The world ought to want what we have in the church. There ought to be a taste, a thirst, a hunger, a fragrance about us that, that causes the world to want what we have because there's unity, because there's togetherness. And, and here's what's going on. You, you see it in the text, uh, in, in the verses, you can picture this, but I'll just kind of paint a picture. When, when What was happening was that the rich, the rich people in Corinth, would come to these feasts and they would re- they would arrive earlier. They weren't they would they maybe didn't have to work. They weren't at work still. They would arrive earlier. They would bring lavish, extravagant amounts of food, great the best recipes, the choicest everything. They would bring them here. And and you know what? They would they would just get there early and they'd start eating. Hey, all my buddies are here. Hey, you're here. You're, oh yeah, all the people that matter to me are here. Let's go. Let's start eating. They'd bring the largest portions, they'd get the best seating, and by the time the poor who had to work came to the feast, nothing left. No food left. And what little bit of food was left, they'd say, oh, you know what, sorry, this room is full, you need to go away, you need to go out there to the courtyard, 
They'd be in people's homes probably. They'd say, you know what? You can't sit at the dining room table. You need to go out on the back porch. You can't sit in here in the night. You, know, you need to go out there. This, this is full. Not, hey, we're, come on, have a seat. Have my, none, none of that. It's like, hey, you need to go out there. That's what's going on. What, what little, what, again, what little might have been left, they're like, you can take that and go right, out, right down the hallway. You can go right over there. You're not sitting with us. And you see that in verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you'll have... No, he's saying, hey, if you're coming here to gorge yourself, eat at home. Eat at home when you, so you, when you come here, you're not a hog. Share. And, and the body of Christ, some in the body of Christ became prospering at the expense of others in the body. And Paul says, you're killing the body. And the, re- the result was just that. Clicks, exclusive groups, little tight-knit groups that nobody could break into. The church began erecting social barriers. Uh, you're poor, I'm rich, you're this, I'm that, dividing itself. And he says it multiple times, there's divisions. There's divisions. They're, they're resurrecting again. They're resurrecting the very thing that Christ tore down. And they're rebuilding it to their own hurt. And the very meal that was supposed to celebrate their unity and their lack of social distinctions ended up bringing them back. That, that's the chaos here. The very thing that they were supposed to be celebrating that had destroyed this, they're celebrating in a way that's actually bringing it back and being divisive. And they assembled to partake of the Lord's Supper, and they were actually being divided. Look at verse 22. What? Do you have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise, listen to this, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Paul says, I will not praise you on this. It was shameful to the poor that instead of worshiping, they were act, and by doing that, instead of worshiping, they were despising the church. Literally there, he means you're tearing it apart because of division. And, and we run the same risk today. The very meal that we're going to celebrate at noon, Lord willing, here, we're, the very meal that's meant to bring us together, that's to help us to get to, one another, to, get to know one another, to, to, to fellowship in the greatness of what God has done for us, if we're not careful, the very meal can actually cause division. The very thing that's to bring us together can actually divide us. Same risk today. People not sharing. People hurrying to the front of the line. People at the front of the line eating all the food and the people at the back of the line don't have any. Same thing can happen here. People hurrying, get the best seats. Saving seats. All of that, eventually, trust me, all of that causes friction and division. Now watch, today when I pray and ask who wants to go first, ain't nobody going to go first. Be like, hey, you go, I'll go first and get it started. But, but here's the thing, Christ's death ushered in a new covenant in which we now live. Believers eat in the presence and the fellowship of one another. And how they're united is because of Christ. It's Christ's death. That united them. Rich, poor, slave, free, Jew, gent- in this room today. Rich, 
poor, white, black, man, woman, no matter where you're from. You know what unites us? It's Christ. The common footing we're all standing on is Christ. We've got no room for boasting. Salvation was done, we saw it at the beginning, in in chapter 1, verse 31. God designed salvation for one reason, well, many reasons, but one specifically, so that you could not boast, and so that I could not boast. No boasting in the cross. Look at verse 24, he says, and when he gave, Jesus, Paul is, is referring back to Jesus, and he says, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, he says, celebrate the fact that I gave myself up for you. And you know how you celebrate that fact? By giving yourself up for one another. That's how you celebrate it. The the bread represents Christ's body. The, 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 The juice, the wine, the drink represents his blood. One body, together, all divisions broken down, destroyed, never to be reconstructed. Again, and and again. Please hear me, the, diff, the distinction between Jew and Greek, male, female, freed, slave, were huge in that day. It wasn't just some small thing that, that Christ did. These were huge distinctions. You can see even in, in, even in Galatians, Peter was going back and having dinner. There was still division. Huge. We are who we are. Here's the point of the Lord's Supper. Here's the point of what we do. We are who we are because of grace. And it's a grace that came at a very high price. And therefore we understand, I got in by grace, and therefore I will be a bestower of grace. I got in by mercy, so guess what I'm going to give to one another? Mercy. I got in by sacrificial love, you know what I'm going to give to others? Sacrificial love. That's, 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 the, that's the church in a nutshell. And, and in the church, there, are, there should be no class distinctions no distinctions no us and them no mine and yours we're one body white black male female rich poor healthy sick young old all the different ways that we like to segregate ourselves destroyed one body one body we we didn't get saved for any of those reasons we're not saved because of any of those reasons We didn't get saved because you came from this side of town or that side of town. No, we got saved because of the grace of God. And he says, go be a bestower of grace. Look look, look at Paul. We've seen this. Paul reminded the Corinthians of this. In 1 Corinthians 1, for instance, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. He's saying, look, think back to who you were. That you were not many, that that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no, listen to this, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 3, 5 through 9, he says the same thing. I planted other water, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Who's to be praised? God. Chapter 4, verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why? and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 
all those things want to creep in and destroy unity in a church. And the body of Christ, the point is this, the body of Christ can have no divisions. In the same way that your physical body, if your physical body begins to work against its own body, guess what happens? Your body is destroyed. When your body turns on itself and begins to work against itself, you're, you're, going, to be strong, you're going to be destroyed. When, when us as a spiritual body, the body of Christ, when we turn against ourselves, when we refuse to serve one another, to help one another, we're going to be destroyed. We need each other. And everything, here's the picture, everything that the poor were to the rich in Paul's day, we were to Christ when he saved us. And no business saving us. No business sending his son to die on the cross for Chris Basham. And yet he did. No distinction that I could ever place between you and me would be as significant as the distinction that I had between me and God because of my sin. And yet God bridged that gap and took me in. That's the picture of the video. He brought us in, took us as his own, accepted us, saved us. That's the picture that the church ought to portray. And everything about what the Corinthians were doing had become opposite of what they really should be doing. And listen to this. Christ invited us in. The Corinthians were keeping people out. Christ had said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know what the Corinthians were saying? Hey, you go out there. Christ has assumed responsibility for us. Not only has he invited us in, Christ assumed responsibility for us. The Corinthians were avoiding their responsibility for one another. We're part of one body. You weep, I should weep. You cry, I cry. It's not, oh, I hear they're going through a rough time. Let me go over here so they don't ask anything of me. It's no, I go to them and say, hey, how can I help you? How can I walk with you through this? That's the church. Christ gave himself up as a sacrifice. The Corinthians refused to sacrifice. Christ destroyed the barriers. The Corinthians were rebuilding them. And the same, the same danger is creeping at every single one of our doors every single day of our lives to resurrect the very same things that Christ has destroyed and to be divided. And, and the result, here it is, they were making a mockery of what was sacred and God says, Paul says, God is not going to deal with that lightly. And that's what you see in verses 27 through 32. He says, many among you are sick, and some of you are asleep. That means dead. Look at verse 32. Why? It says they were being judged. They were being disciplined in God's judgment of them. Why? To bring them to, reckon, to, to, to repentance so that they would not be condemned eternally. And here's the reality. God disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews 12. The reality is this. We walk around and I, I hear it and I'm even prone to it. We, we wander around wondering why God disciplines when He does. The reality in my life and, and probably in your life, the biggest wonder is this. Why doesn't He discipline me more? Why does His grace override His discipline when I'm so worthy of that and, and, and be because of my sin? I, I know I'm a sinner. And yet at any given moment, I have no clue 
of how great a sinner I am. You can ask Karen. She could probably give you a better idea. But I don't know. But here's the deal. Nobody knows how great a sinner I am than God, and yet He sent His Son to die on the cross for me. He didn't shy away from it. And that's the picture that we're supposed to be as a church. God's grace gives us what we don't deserve. You know what He says? Go do likewise. Give grace to those who don't deserve. God's mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve. You know what He says? Go do likewise. Go give one another what they don't deserve. What they do deserve. Don't give them what they do deserve. Regularly. God's kindness leads us to repentance. You know what he says? Go do likewise. Go do likewise. And we get all that and so much more from Christ. Don't fall into the trap. Don't fall into the trap. And, and the ladies in their Bible study, Karen and I were talking about this one night, and, and I think Priscilla Shire said it best, and it's one of those statements that I, I pray I'll never forget. And if I, was a, if I was a tweeter, if I had a Twitter account, I probably would have tweeted this. And I, I, told, I told a couple people the next day about it, and they were tweeting. And I said, well, don't quote me, because I didn't say it. But Priscilla Shire said this, Don't mistake God's loyalty to you with His approval of you. You see, God's just that kind. He's just that loyal that even when He doesn't approve, it doesn't infringe upon His loyalty. He's still loyal. Do not mistake His loyalty with His approval. And the Corinthians for sure are saying, yo, what have we done? He's saying, hey, I'll show you what you've done. You've despised the poor and you're being disciplined. You're divided. You've got social barriers and God, God will not leave a divided church undealt with. Don't, don't let us be a people that take His grace for granted. T- to think, oh, well, nothing bad has happened to me. He must be okay with me. That may not be the case. He's just that loving kind. He's just that gracious. He's just that merciful. That, that Romans 2, 4, His kindness and His tolerance, it leads us to repentance. He's calling us to repentance. And in His grace, it is still gracious, even when He does discipline, to stop the foolishness where it is, to stop it before it goes any further, and to draw us back. And so, so don't, my prayer, don't be a church that's divided. Fight it. There, there are people in here, look, we're human. We gravitate to some people. Other people may aggravate us. I, I get that. But we're a church. We're, we're the body of Christ. We've got to fight through that. I know this. I know I aggravate my Savior all the time, and yet He still loves me. He pursues me. So when we gather, what's the application real quick? When we gather, especially when we gather to take the Lord's Supper, we've got to do the following. Look back to Christ's death. Don't ever wander far from the reminder that Christ died that you could live. Look back. Not only look back, look in and examine ourselves. You see, Paul says, judge yourself. Anything in your life that you're going to be, you're going to be asking, for, asking for discipline in, judge your life. But not only look back and look in, look up and fellowship with God. Realize what that gospel painted, that we have been brought into the very near presence of God Himself. Hebrews says, approach the throne with confidence. Look around. Not only look up, look around. There are brothers and sisters who are walking through stuff. 
and, and they need one another. They need encouragement. They need the grace that God showed you when you walked through it. Look around. Be looking for opportunities to serve. Not only look around, but look forward to Christ's return. Everything will not make sense here on this earth. One day God will come, He will take us home, and it will all have been worth it. Paul said in Romans 8.18, For I do not consider the present sufferings are worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. One day when we stand before our King, I, get, I hear it all the time, I got a couple of questions, let me tell you something. When you stand before Jesus, you ain't asking any questions. You're going to be on your face, overwhelmed with His greatness. Overwhelmed with the thought that He followed through and He did for you what He promised to do in spite of you. That's what you're going to be overwhelmed with. And that's, that's, lastly, that leads to, lastly, look outward to the lost around us. Just like it said in that video, don't take God's salvation and then run and hide. Go back to the very people that you ran with and came with, when God saved you out of them, go back. Take the gospel to them. We gather here for worship. If anyone asks you what we're doing here, it's worship. And the answer has to be worship because of one reason, because God sent His Son to die on the cross for us. He died, he was resurrected three days later, he went home, he's preparing a place for us, and one day he will return for us. I pray that we will be found faithful when he returns. I pray that the body, his body, his bride will be whole when he returns. That we would fight cliques, that we'd fight our differences, and, we, and instead we would be a complete body in spite of our differences. Romans 12.10 sums it up. He says this, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Give preference to one another in honor. If you could sum up what I, what one of the many things that I want for this church, I'd love for us to be, if someone said, hey, tell me about Odessa. Hey, they're devoted to one another in brotherly love. And they give preference to one another in honor. That'd be a great church to be a part of. And I think that'd be a church that people would want to be a part of. And I think God would use that to continue. I'm not, don't think you think, don't think we, don't think we're not healthy. Don't think we, is this is just a regular checkup, if you will, in this passage. Keep at it. Keep at it. This is an oil change. I take my truck every 3,000, sometimes 5,000 miles to get the oil changed. I, I'm, I'm a conspiracy theorist at heart sometimes. I think that's a conspiracy. I think I can make it 5,000. And I have the same attitude that we have to Christ. Nothing bad's happened in between three and 5,000 miles. It didn't stop working. But don't, don't stop working. You know, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, do not grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary, church. 